I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And thank you for tuning in and joining us in our mission to change the way the world looks at aging. That's our mission. That's a huge job, Mark. But you know what makes it a little easier? All of the amazing men and women out there right now who are smashing one stereotype after another and proving that it's never too late to find your purpose, to pursue your passion, to make a difference in your community. Yeah, really, all we have to do is feature these role models for the Growing Bolder lifestyle on Growing Bolder TV, in Growing Bolder magazine. Magazine and right here on Growing Boulder Radio, which is what we're going to do right now. In fact, on today's program, a short guide to a long life from one of the world's leading cancer doctors. We've also got the woman who went on a global mission to meet and then be mentored by the world's greatest female runners to try and discover what we can all learn from them about living younger, longer. Plus, a renowned doctor who says we've got it all wrong when it comes to dealing with end-of-life issues. Well, as everybody out there knows, Growing Boulder is about smashing stereotypes, and not because you want to, but because you want to live your life, because you refuse to buy into the ageist propaganda that it's too late to chase your dream, too late to make a difference. Well, our next guest has racked up an impressive $1.2 billion in box office with his films over the years. You said billion right Billion, there? yeah. Wow. Well, he's appeared in over 80 films, so it's no wonder. He was in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, Dracula, Glory, Days of Thunder, Twister, Kill the Girls, and many others. But I'm telling you, Mark, his most famous role, at least to me, is in a true Hollywood classic. We're talking about Rob Reiner's 1987 film. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. The Princess Bride. You'll get an argument here. It's been called one of the greatest love stories ever told, ranked by the Writers Guild of America as one of the top 100 screenplays ever produced. His new memoir, As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride, includes never-before-told behind-the-scenes stories Welcome, Wesley Carey Elvis. Hey, Carey, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? You know what? It is hard to believe. It makes me feel old when when, <laughs> when we realize that it's been 28 years since. I know. The, you know, and it's more popular than ever. So let me start with a question. I know you're probably sick of getting asked because everybody does. What is it about this film that has created such a passionate and large fan base three decades later? I'm I'm never sick of uh, answering that. I I can't quite put my finger on it. I, I, in the book, I try to address it, um, of what I believe the reason is, but I think, I, I, and it's just my opinion, so, so I, you know, I can't, uh, I can't justify it for other people, but I think it's because it's, uh, first of all, it's, a, it's a, a great love story, and the film was made with a lot of heart, you know, I mean, the, 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 the whole concept of the, film, of the story itself, the book, Bill Goldman, uh, who wrote it, came up with the idea by asking his two daughters what what would they want him to write a book about one of them said brides and the other said princesses mm. so he wrote it for them so it, it the, the whole project initially started with with a man uh, you know uh, concerned about writing something sweet and loving for his kids and i think that 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 set the tone for us and i think that's why it resonates today i hope i think you know, Carrie, it kind of makes me wonder how did it, how did it resonate with you? Was it one of those things that I'm sure you get tons of scripts that you look through? Did you realize something when you read it, or was it once you were on the set and met the other actors, or was it not until you were sitting in the theater watching it for the first time yourself? Um, I knew the book. I'd read it when I was 13, so I was very familiar with the work of William Goldman. I, I, I was a huge fan and still am a huge fan of his. He's one of the, I think, our national treasures as far as writers concern, are concerned. I mean, this is a man who wrote Marathon Man, All the President's Men, um, Butch Cassidy and, Long, and, and the Sundance Kid. And so, you know, in, and of all these films that he's written, this is his favorite. So... Um, I also was well aware of Rob Reiner's work. I, I'd seen, like most people, I'd seen Spinal Tap, which is, you know, a classic, and uh, Sure Thing and Stand By Me. And I thought the combination of these two extraordinary, talented people 
was going to be something extraordinary. You know, I just thought that this was an, an incredible opportunity for me. I, we, we didn't know making it, obviously. No one does when you make a film that it's going to have, you know, be successful or have an audience. We hoped it would. Um, and in fact, when the film came out, it really didn't do that much at the box office. It did well. It was respected, res had a respectable response, but it didn't do the kind of numbers that, that the studio was hoping. And it wasn't until about 10 years later when it came out in VHS that people started renting it, then buying it, and then giving it as gifts to family and friends. And so it became this generational thing. I, I call it the gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> you know. Uh, folks, we're talking with Carrie Elwes, who has written uh, a memoir, uh, surprisingly the first book, to my knowledge, is, that has been written about the making of The Princess Bride. And, of course, Carrie today is known worldwide as not only a phenomenal actor, but also a great guy. But, but back then, Carrie, you were in your early 20s, relatively unknown, uh, when they were casting for the film, as perfect as you ended up being for Wesley, you still had to audition for Rob Reiner. Obviously, that went pretty well. Yeah, well, um... Thank you for those kind words, by the way. I, I, I didn't think I was going to get the part because I, I, I'm terrible at auditions. I just, I, I, more often than not, I get roles that are offered to me as opposed to ones I, I, I read for. And, and so I thought, well, they're going to ask me to read and that's that. And when Rob pulled out the script in my hotel room in Germany, I was working in Berlin at the time, and said, so I just want to hear a scene. I just thought, well, that's it. It's over. And... Um, Somehow we were chatting afterwards and we're talking about popular culture and uh, explaining to Rob how I knew his work and all in the family and uh, how I'd watched a lot of TV as a kid. And for some reason, Fat Albert came up. I don't know why, but I, did, I ended up doing a, <laughs> a Fat Albert impersonation, which, <laughs> which Rob seemed to like. And, he, and later on, he said it was a combination of my humor and, and, and the read that got me the part. So I, I'm, I feel grateful to get one of the great roles of my career. That may be a story that he has never heard. Oh, I'm sure he has by now. <laughs> hey, Carrie, it, it wasn't just you, though. I mean, when you look at the, at the people in that movie, I mean, how, I know. how could it I not know. have been? I call, it, I call it a tsunami of talent. I was, again, well aware of all of their work. Uh, coming into the project you know I'd, I'd i'd seen dog day afternoon a number of times so chris sarandon who got nominated for his very first performance in that film was was you know very much uh, lived large in my in my um, world and and mandy i knew him from yentl and and uh i wallace, wallace sean from my dinner with andre i mean i looked around at this room of people for the first read-through and i just thought wow i'm clearly the novice <laughs> in this room, you know, and uh, hey, Carrie, so it was can, a little intimidating. Can you help us but, out? But um, they all made me feel very, very welcome, and, and it was just uh, it was, it was a very pleasant uh, experience for, for me. Help us understand that, because like in my own life, I remember one time when I got to meet my childhood heroes in person, and it was like the most disappointing thing I ever did. Who in the cast exceeded your expectations of what you thought they, was going to happen? I must say they all did. They all were just as I imagined and hoped they would be. Um, nobody, there was no egos on this set. It was just a, a, a case of having fun. It was, it was like, uh, I mean, really, it was like theater camp. All of us, you know, running around the English countryside, dressed as pirates <laughs> and princesses, and being chased by six-fingered people. And it was it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> and Rob set the tone. You know, I mean, Rob is a wonderful, he's a wonderful guy anyway, but he's a really great guy to work with. Um, and he handpicked not just the cast, but, but most of the crew. So he wanted to make sure that when we went on this journey, it would be a, a fun and exciting one for everyone. And, uh, and he did that. And this, is, and this is why you've got to read the book. I mean, we do not have enough time. Most films, if we were talking about them, there'd be one or two scenes that we'd want to talk about. I'd like to talk about every single freaking <laughs> scene in this movie. But, but let me ask you about when you were playing Dead, uh, yes. and Billy Crystal is trying to bring you back to life. I yes. mean, he was hilarious. I can only imagine what the outtakes were like. Oh, gosh. Well, we couldn't print them all. Some of them, they started to get pretty blue. He was doing Yiddish stand-up. You know, Rob gave him a free reign. He just went up to him and went, okay, go for it. <laughs> and, uh, and then he walked over to me and went, now remember, you're playing mostly dead. You're not allowed to breathe. We can't see your chest move. Nothing. So when, when I yell action, you've got to hold your breath. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm done for. You know, the minute 
he opened his mouth, Billy is Miracle Max, you know, we all bust out laughing. I mean, you know, his first improvisation was, don't rush me, Sonny. Uh, you know, uh, I f- last night I found my nephew with the sheep. You know, I mean, things like that. And and, and, and Mandy bust a rib from laughing so much. Rob had to be banned from the set because his laugh can be heard, I, I like to say, it can be heard in Detroit. He has a very robust laugh. So he was sent by the sound department to the, to the hallway to watch from a monitor there. And then, of course, you know, I think Billy made it his mission to make us all laugh. When he started to push air out of my lungs and he tickled me a bit too you know i mean it was crazy so i i i was banished with rob also off the soundstage because i couldn't stop laughing so it was a you know it was only three days he was there but he had us all on the floor and i mean you can i think there's a site you can go to on youtube where it has some of the outtakes you can hear the whole crew laughing i mean it's crazy and it all came through so well carrie and it kind of underscores the kind of person you are your reputation in an industry of suspect characters is beyond reproach. Do you have a takeaway for us, Carrie, a, a philosophy of how you've lived your life and, and what you can pass along to the rest of us, what you've learned? Count your blessings every day. Uh, it's very easy to focus on the negative, but if you focus on the positive, you realize just how how blessed you even the smallest blessings are worth counting. And uh, so I, I make sure I start my day with with that uh, philosophy and that focus rather than anything that could possibly, you know, be, you know, the opposite. Yeah. Well, you've put out a lot of good vibes into the universe, uh, Carrie, and obviously they've come back to you. Folks, uh, I know you'd like to listen to him more. You can visit him again on the pages of his new book. It's called... As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. He is Carrie Elwes. Carrie, thanks so much for your time. Coming up, he needed a double organ transplant and was running out of options. How D. Bennett went from barely surviving to thriving. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio. Preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit GrowingBoulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. Time now for our Surviving and Thriving segment. With the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible not only to survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. Yeah, D. Bennett wasn't even thinking about thriving. He was just trying to survive, and it didn't look good for D. He needed a double organ transplant, and time was running out. D. Bennett was battling several health conditions when he had a negative reaction to long-term exposure to two drugs, one over-the-counter and another by prescription. And I was a pretty good drinker, so when you drink on top of all of that stuff, uh, it just further damages uh, things. I started going downhill big time. Early January, I called my parents and said, come get me. I've, I've gotten up out of the chair and I won't be able to do it again, so get me to the hospital. Dee was in and out of assisted living facilities and hospitals and ended up in dialysis. His liver was shot and his kidneys were failing. The only thing that could save him now was a double transplant. Yeah, at that time he was pretty sick, so if he didn't get a transplant probably in the next four or six weeks from when he came, I don't think he would have been around. 
he was very debilitated, and I think that's why the other senators probably turned him down, knowing that he may not turn around. So my hope really was reignited, and I can't tell you how sweet and kind everybody over there is to deal with in the prayers that, that went out by everybody in that hospital and the support by everybody down to the person that's cleaning your room that would come in and spend time with you and support you, everybody. It was just a wonderful experience. Transplant requires a team approach, not only the surgeons, it's our colleagues, our medical colleagues, our nephrologists, our hepatologists, and the nurses. So you want to build a core group of people because you're working seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and we rely on each other. Dee also credits his parents who brought him dinner every night and stood by his side every day for months. And without my parents' help, I never would have gotten through any of this. They were there the whole time. They, they lived in Comfort Inn across the street from the hospital for four months. They lived in a hotel room. It took months to recover from his double transplant surgery, but Dee soon felt better than he had in years. So much better that he went to his 35th high school reunion and began a relationship with someone he hadn't seen in decades. They soon became business partners, purchasing two assisted living facilities where they provide the kind of support that Dee now knows is critical to surviving and thriving. Good food and plenty of social stimulation. Our people have to come out and sit at the breakfast, lunch, and dinner table. And it means a lot to interact. Where I was, they never did that. You were served in bed, and they, you know, it was easy for them to babysit you and leave you in a room. It was the easiest thing that they could do, but that is actually the worst thing for a patient. Dee is definitely making the most of the second chance given to him by the doctors and, of course, by his donor. A timely reminder to all of us about the importance of becoming an organ donor. Dr. Robert Masson, one of the world's foremost neurosurgeons who is an expert on extreme recovery. And his patients include some of the top amateur and professional athletes in the world because he gets them back in the game better than they were before. Yeah, Dr. Masson specializes in the treatment of athletic spinal injuries. He's an expert on healthy lifestyle as well. He speaks constantly about what he calls prehabbing, preparing for physical setbacks that we are all certain to face as we age, the effect of obesity on both surgery and recovery. Just as a starting point, someone who's bigger has a deeper wound. They have a longer, a longer path to get to where we need to go to take off that critical disc herniation on that small nerve root or spinal cord. And so right off the bat, it's technically more difficult. That lends itself to a slightly higher risk of complications. The diabetes has a wound healing phenomena, so there's a slightly higher risk of fighting infection. So wound infections are more common. Ultimately, the risk of anesthesia with heart disease is higher. The risk of sleep apnea and breathing problems is higher. If you're trying to uh, start an early mobilization program for your reconstruction surgery, you know, carrying too much weight on a painful wound is even more painful. Narcotic demands are higher. Every element of prevention, treatment, and recovery is more difficult the more out of control your obesity is. Coming up, one of the most respected doctors in America with a short guide to a long life. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Mark and Bill here on Growing Boulder, and you know, there's no question that the best way to tackle any disease, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, all the diseases we fear 
is prevention. Our next guest says he can help with that, and boy, does he have the credentials to back it up. He's one of the world's leading cancer doctors and pioneering biomedical researchers and specializes in treating patients with advanced cancer. He is a professor of medicine and engineering at the University of Southern California, a regular CBS News contributor, and is the author of a fascinating new book called A Short Guide to a Long Life. Welcome, Dr. David Agus. Hey, Doc, how are you? Thank you, Mark and Bill. I am great. You know, we appreciate some of your valuable time. It is interesting that you have been dubbed controversial by some, when in truth, you've pretty much dedicated yourself to not being anybody's mouthpiece and to going where the science leads you, where the data leads you, right? Yeah, you know, I I went on a friend's TV show, Dr. Oz, and he billed me as the most controversial doctor in America. And I said, are you serious? I'm probably the most conservative doctor in America because all I do is what the data say. I'm very data-driven. And so that may be controversial to go with data instead of instinct. But in medicine, most of the times when we've guessed, we've been wrong. Don't we get a lot of mixed messages to Doc, you know, and, and maybe even it comes sometimes from Dr. Oz's show as well. You'll hear somebody one day say this is the way to go and somebody else will refute that. And luckily, we've got you to kind of take a look at the evidence go right down the middle. Well, you know, I think you're right, is that there's a lack of leadership in health. You know, the debate in Washington for the last decade has been health care finance. And if I challenge you on the street to say, who is a leader in health in our country today? Who's the Surgeon General? Nobody knows. You know, see Everett Coop? They knew. Now we don't have real leadership. And so without leadership, you cannot get normative behavior. You can't get everybody thinking the data-driven ways to really approach health. And unfortunately, there's a lot of money to be made in health. Health and food represent 30% of the U.S. economy. So everybody's selling something. Everybody's pushing something. We've got to take a step back and say what's right. Start selling the truth, just like you are. And before we get to some of the information in your book, it is obvious, uh, Doc, that you believe that health care and health care reform starts at home. More than anything else, it's a personal responsibility. No question about it. I want you to know yourself. You know, one of the rules in the book is get naked because I want you to look in the mirror and look at yourself every day and look at the changes. You are in charge of you. But it's so difficult in our country to say, I want you to do something today that's going to help you a decade or two from now, right? We're all, I want to do something that matters today. So it's very hard to get people to think long range. It's really the challenge. Well, you had me until you said, look at yourself naked, and then you kind of lost me there. (laughs) And it's just one of the things in the book, A Short Guide to a Long Life. It is a fun, fascinating, it's an easy-to-read book, and it's not a book of opinions, as we've talked about. You say that it's based on rigorous study and incontroversial data. What have you learned? How can you help us a decade down the road? You know, there are simple things where, you know, there's a pill a day that costs $3 a year that if you take it, reduces not the incidence, but the death rate of cancer by 30%, heart disease by 22%, and stroke by 17%. It's called a baby aspirin. So something as simple as that, where we have data now and over a half a million people studied for 25 years showing this dramatic effect, yep, most people don't do it. You know, there's another piece of data that's really astounding to me, and we really have designed our societies the opposite. And that is, in the 1950s in England, there were 26,000 workers in the British Transit Authority. Half were the bus drivers that sat all day, and half were the ticket takers that walked up and down those double-decker buses. They weighed the same, smoked the same, lived in the same environment, yet dramatically lower heart disease and cancer in the ticket takers that walked. We were designed to move, yet our society is all bus drivers, right? The more important you are in your company, the closer your parking space is to your desk. The richer you are, the more bathrooms you have in your house. You don't have to walk room to room to go to the bathroom. You know, your lymphatics that control your immune system have no muscle in the wall. It's the rhythmic contraction of the muscles in your legs when you walk that make your body work. Yet we're designing our society for the opposite. You know, that is great stuff. And you say in the book, Doc, you don't have to move that much. But if you do have a desk job, get up on a regular basis and move for three or four minutes at a time. And that will help. 
know, I used to, uh, you know, at the public, I took care of Steve Jobs his last years with cancer. I was one of the doctors, and I would go up and see him. And he always said, David, let's go for a walk. He said, there are two reasons for the walk. One is the health benefits, because they're dramatic. He said, there's another reason, which if you go for a walk and you know where you're going and the other person doesn't, you know you're going to turn left or right, the other person doesn't, it gives you a slight advantage in the business dealings. And so obviously he had multiple reasons for doing Uh things, but the data are very clear. Get up, walk around. Don't put a printer next to your desk. Make it the other side of the room. You know, get one of those headsets where you look like an air traffic controller. It can walk around the office when you're talking on the phone. I have a treadmill desk in my office. So two hours a day when I do emails, I'm actually walking. Folks, we're talking to Dr. David Agus, who's written a fascinating new book called A Short Guide to a Long Life. Basically, the book is uh, divided into three sections. One of those is called What to Do, and he just mentioned that, well, one of them. Take a baby aspirin. He's also a fan of statins. Uh, statins. You can read more about that yourself. Doc, the second segment is What to Avoid. Uh, interestingly, one of the things that you are not a fan of is vitamins and supplements. Again, it's not me. It's the data. Um, There is yet to be a positive study in the history of man or womankind showing that taking a vitamin or a supplement in a normal individual has a benefit. Yet in many of the studies, there's harm. You know, women over 75 who take high-dose vitamin D, 26% increase, not decrease, increase in bone fractures. Men who take vitamin E, dramatic increase in prostate cancer. Uh, smokers and former smokers who take vitamin A or beta carotene, dramatic increase in lung cancers. So potential significant negative, no benefit at all. Why are we doing it? How many friends of yours have scurvy or beriberi or rickets, which are lack of vitamins? I don't know of anybody. And what about caffeine? I mean, we all were we're a nation of coffee drinkers. So the data on caffeine are, are clear. Up to two to three cups a day has no health detriment at all. And, you know, it's caffeine over time. So a cup of coffee, awesome. When you do an energy shot, which is all that caffeine in five seconds when you do the shot, that has significant negative effects. So don't have too much. Have the same amount every day, up to two to three cups. And rather stick to things like coffees and teas, which, by the way, we've been doing for a couple thousand years. So most behaviors that we do for thousands of years have a benefit. You're not a big fan either of juicing, and there's been so much money spent on the marketing of juicers and getting us to juice. What don't you like about that? So, you know, once you take a fruit or a vegetable and you put it into a blender, it gets exposed to oxygen and exposed to all the perturbations of that blade chopping it up or being smushed. When that happens, all the nutrients degrade literally in hundreds of a millisecond. And so what you're eating is basically sugar and degradatory products. And so the key is eat the real food. Eat the fruit, the vegetable from the tree. You know, cut it up, put it into your yogurt in the morning. You know, when you, you know, cut it in half, you're only exposing a tiny surface to the air. Once you put it into the blender, everything is being ex- uh, exposed or being juiced. And so there's very little nutritional value to these juices, just a big bolus of sugar. And the human body wasn't made to have eight carrots. The human body was made to eat a carrot and absorb what it needs from it. So go back to the real food. Um, obviously, people make a lot less by selling a real food than a juice. Mm. And so, you know, it's obviously the, you know, the capitalist market that have pushed these products together, but there's no data, only negative behind them. And I know people get mad when I say that. You know, I have to throw out the juicer I just spent $200 for. Well, the data are clear. Eat real food. Doc, I'd love to talk to you longer. I've got to go throw my vitamins away and get rid of my juicer and start taking baby aspirin. Uh, you're awesome. What great advice, great conversation. We hope we can get you back again and again. But keep shouting what you can to the rooftops because if America's looking for a leader, maybe it's you in the medical field. Dr. David Eggis, the book is called A Short Guide to a Long Life. Thanks for some excellent information. Coming up next, older, faster, stronger, what the world's best older runners can teach us all about living younger, longer. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard. 
in abstract threats to noble, to neglect. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And you know, folks, it's no secret that life beyond 50, 60, 70, even 80 and 90 is nothing like it was even 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, now, now that doesn't always mean that people, everybody is living differently as they grow older, but it does mean that we all have the potential to live much differently. We know that from the stories we do every day for Growing Boulder TV, Growing Boulder Magazine, and Growing Boulder Radio. And our next guest knows it as well because she not only lives it, she's written a book about it. It's called Older, Faster, Stronger, What Women Runners Can Teach Us All About Living Younger, Longer. Let's welcome Margaret Webb. Hey, Margaret, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Love the subject. Let me set it up quickly if I can. You were an athlete in college. You went on to become a very successful journalist and author. But like so many of us do, you didn't stay in the kind of shape that you thought you should. So when you turned 50, what happened? Oh, well, I was actually uh, a couple of years before I turned 50, I, I, I was staring down that bullet. And I tell you, it terrified me. Um, I wanted more life, and I had this sense that life is over at 50, and I really didn't want that to happen. So uh, this crazy idea of running a marathon uh, popped into my head. I swore I'd never run one, but I thought, hey, why don't I go with this crazy idea? And the funny thing is, is that everything that was ailing me, um, you know, my anxiety about turning 50, sort of this depression that had set in, Running seemed to fix everything. My confidence soared. I felt younger. I lost 25 pounds. I started sleeping better. I quit smoking. And when I turned 50, it was uh, usually I dread my birthday, but on my 50th birthday, it was one of the happiest days of my life. And Margaret, it grabbed you, not just physically, but mentally too. I mean, you went off on a journey that took you all across North America. It took you to Africa. It took you to Europe. You were looking everywhere to find people living the life that you wanted. You were looking for advice from the most successful older runners in the world. Yeah. I I mean, I, I'm a bit of an adventure girl, and the more I ran, the more uh, hungry I got for adventure. And I, and I really saw this journey into aging as, as an adventure. So I wanted to uh, explore not just the science of aging and the science of exercise, but I wanted to meet these fantastic older women like Ida Hebert, the world's oldest yoga instructor, 97 years old, and that woman uh, is still doing the downward dog uh, better than I can. And uh, I wanted to um, meet people like uh, 85-year-old B.J. McHugh, who can run a marathon at age at age 80. She ran a marathon faster than uh, the average uh, 20 to 40-year-old woman does in the New York City Marathon. And so these, these were the mentors that, that showed me that it was possible um, to really achieve the impossible, and, and that is to have the fitness of a much younger person, uh, but with the, with the wisdom of a 50-year-old. So I, I felt that when I worked my way through this 50th year, that, that that's what I achieved. You know, um, I had the fitness of a much younger person, but but uh, thank God, some of the wisdom of my years. And, you know, it, it's great news for all of us. And, and, you know, Margaret, Bill and I have built our business uh, basically on the backs uh, of, of ordinary people. You know, we like to tell stories of ordinary people that are doing extraordinary things because those are the role models that we can all relate to. And, and pretty much isn't that what you found out yourself as you went to meet these icons of running, these these women that you admired? When it came right down to it, they were ordinary women that w- that somehow had created an extraordinary life, Correct. You know, absolutely, and I spoke, one of the first people I spoke to on my journeys, um, because I kind of wanted to interview women who are sort of in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, who, who showed me the path, showed me that it was possible, that if I keep physically fit, I can keep my, uh, my mental health, and I can, I can keep my cognitive well-being, I, my brain will stay young if my body stays young. And Linda Somers-Smith, who qualified for the Olympic, U.S. Olympic trials seven straight times, and her seventh time at, uh, in her 50s, and, and she told me, you know what, I need mentors. We don't, as women, we don't, we don't necessarily have these examples of successful older women, um, and I mean successful on an everyday level of staying fit. And so I went out to find those and talk with them, interview them, and I met people like Gwen McFarland, who was extraordinary, 
she started running at age 60 after being diagnosed with breast cancer. And she didn't know that she would survive. And she credits running with extending her life into her 80s. And, and again, at age 75, she ran a world record marathon 15 years after taking up running. That was faster than the average finishing time of 20 to 40-year-old men in the New York City Marathon. So here we have these women in the 75 and 80 who can kick the butt of young men in their prime. And I thought, well, you know what? There's, there's no reason. I mean, I might not run a world record uh, 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 marathon for my age group, but there's no reason I can't go after that, that level of fitness because uh, I, I want to have that youthful vigor when I'm that, I'm that age. You know, Margaret, we hear you, and everybody listening says, I know she's right, but so few of us can do it. Have you learned anything about what keeps us from being able to get off the couch and, and not just start running but continue to stay in shape? Yeah, you know, it is it is the tough part. The motivation, I think, is 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 number one, and I think that um, personal trainers, the whole fitness industry, they don't they don't really address that number one issue enough. And for myself, I, I said to myself, um, is as I started to run and feel better, I said, what kind of body do I want to carry me through the next three decades of my life? Do I want it to be a fifty year old body that's going to continue to age? Or do I want to reset the biological clock? You know, can I, can I get to a, the fitness of a 20 or 30-year-old and have that body carry me through the next uh, 30 or 40 years? And that's a decision I made. And once I made that decision and, um, you know, got support, boy, did I ever go out and get support because I don't think this is something we can do alone. I joined a running club. I got a personal trainer. Uh, I, I got a team of experts around me. And, and why not? Why wait? Why wait till we have a team of like doctors and people who are fixing us around us? Why not get the prevention people around us? And they they help motivate me. I worked with a uh, I worked with a sports psychologist. I did a couple of sessions with her, and, and they they help me put into the, the the mind frame that every every time I wake up, uh, every day I wake up, what am I going to do today for my physical fitness? Um, and and the answer is to go. There's never a, am I going to do something today? No. The answer is I'm going to do something today. What is it going to be? And and uh, and I think we can train our mind uh, to to do this. And 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 the beautiful thing is, once our bodies get fit, uh, our bodies crave fitness. They, it craves exercise. And and we want we want that healthy lifestyle uh, uh, every bit as much as we might have wanted a cocktail after work before. Um, so I think that's the big message. And. And most of the women that I met uh, on my travels, um, they didn't start running really until they were in their 50s. I have a, an older sister who went back to the gym at age 50 after not being that uh, uh, active during her life. And she ended up be- becoming an Iron Man hmm. eight years later. <laughs> and if that's not an example in my life, wow. Well, th- there are a lot of great examples in the books, uh, in the book, folks. It's called Older, Faster, Stronger. Uh, it changed Margaret Webb's life. It can change your life as well, filled with the common denominators, the threads that run through the lives of these amazing women, the- these incredible, iconic older runners. Pick it up, read the book, and, and I know you'll be happy you did. Margaret, Thanks so much. Have you heard about the silver tsunami? Up next, Dr. Brad Stewart on creating an entirely new end-of-life model before it's too late. That's next on Growing Boulder. And the glimpse of our past fades away so fast Like a castanet dance in the night Shabby chorus popping late at night Laughing stars falling out of sight Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts.
Business is Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and our next guest has spent four decades passionately advocating for home-based primary care for the chronically and terminally ill. He believes that to fix American health care, that first we have to fix the end-of-life care model. Yeah, and this is obviously a very timely and emotional subject for all of us. America's 78 million baby boomers are now losing an average of nearly 5,000 parents every single day, and that number will continue to rise over the next 20 years as we become the ones facing end-of-life issues. Let's jump into this fascinating topic as we welcome Dr. Brad Stewart. Hey, Dr. Stewart, how how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Well, thanks for all that you are doing and keeping this conversation going, because there is no question the vast majority of us would prefer to die at home, but somehow we end up in hospitals and care centers where our quality of life is poor, the costs are astronomical. Why are we paying enormous amounts of money to die in places we don't want to be? What's wrong with the system? Well, it's, uh, a lot of it's force of habit, I'm afraid, uh, uh, on the part of uh, doctors who, uh, you know, were trained in hospitals. That's where we uh, try to make people better, uh, and we try very hard all the way to the end of life for, uh, in most cases, even when, even when uh, people, I'm not going to call them patients, uh, when, when people are very old. And also it's, it's habit on the part of, of us, I mean, we love our parents, uh, and when they're ailing or sick, uh, we we are used to uh, calling 911 or taking them to the hospital. And, uh, and unless we have a chance to talk it through and realize there's another way, uh, you know, we, we take the easy way out, which is exactly what you described. You said something really interesting there. You call them people instead of patients. Do we tend to look at death as something that's got to be avoided at all costs instead of in an inevitability? Yeah, uh, I use the word, <laughs> I honestly have gotten uncomfortable over my time as a physician with the word patient because uh, uh, the, there are better ways to do this. Uh, but as long as we doctors uh, and and everyone, doctors, nurses, everyone, assumes that uh, older people who are ill uh, are patients, uh, then we, we've lost the game before we even start. Um, when you see people at home where they actually live, where they're safe and comfortable, uh, and where we can do an increasingly large number of very sophisticated things to, to keep them the way they want to be, uh, which is, believe me, uh, not going back to the hospital, uh, then, then it's uh, and treat them as people and find what they want and follow that. Uh, you know, surprising things can happen, and uh, it doesn't just have to do with dying. It really has to do with living. Uh, we, people live differently when they realize they can be independent. And, uh, you know, this is this is America, and uh, these days, uh, until the last day of your life, you can be pretty independent uh, with great support. So that's that's what we're after here. And, and, you know, thank you again for doing what you're doing, because we need experts like you who tell us, you know, what this new model can be. And, you know, Bill and I are trying to do our part by talking about it, because, you know, that really, I think, is where it all begins. As you noted, we don't want to talk about these kind of things until it gets to be too late to have these other options. So so, so what can we do? How do we change Medicare? How do we get people uh, to prepare to, to, to die in their homes instead of in these cold places that we don't want to be? Well, I really want to. I want to take up with what you just said. I, I'm I'm very grateful that you are willing to talk about it because it is hard. <laughs> but the reason it's hard is because we have put sort of a pall over the whole topic. Uh, you know, if it, once you see people uh, able to function, uh, you know, until very very late in their lives, happy with their families, uh, able to get up and come to the dinner table. Uh, you know, it's not such a hard topic. Um, going back to people instead of patients, uh, you know, it's not until you, when you get into people's homes and you ask them what they want, you'll hear things like, I, you know, I want to, I want to see my daughter graduate from, from, uh, or get her PhD, or my granddaughter graduate from high school, or uh, I want to get to the dinner table with my family. Very ordinary, non-medical stuff. Uh, once we help with that. Uh, you know, people people do better, and I think Medicare is only too glad to help with this, because everybody 
uh, understands that uh, we we can do much better than we're doing. So we're working with Medicare uh, right now. We have a meeting set up, uh, you know, in, in a short time with them to talk through how to get some of these new models established because they're being done now. Uh, in many large health systems, and they're being uh, supported by b- many large health plans, insurance companies, uh, doctor groups, hospitals. Everybody's waking up to this, uh, but it's hard to get over the bridge from here to there because uh, we we have uh, we have habits that uh, that are hard to break, and we have payment systems that need to change. So that that's. Uh, that's, I think, the biggest uh, barrier right now to getting quickly over to where we need to be. Talking with Dr. Brad Stewart, and Doc, you've launched a new company called Advanced Care Innovation Strategies. What What is your new business all about? Well, it's just a small consulting group. Uh, we uh, we started uh, and and, uh, and developed a program called Advanced Illness Management uh, at a large health system on the West Coast, uh, and uh, you know, wound up getting uh, a, a large grant from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation to to roll that program out across the entire 24 hospital system, and it became clear we were already working in Washington with a group called CTAC Coalition to Transform Advanced Care, uh, and uh, you know there were so many places that want to learn how to do this that we just felt that it was important to uh, to uh, help. You know, everyone who wants to to know how this can be done uh, to begin to do it. So through CTAC and uh, with ACI strategies, uh, you know, we're we're getting not only getting the word out, but changing the way healthcare is delivered. Uh, everybody wants to do it, believe it or not, including all the hospitals and uh, all the doctors. But the how of how to do it, uh, it's it's complicated. Lots of moving parts. Lots of lots of people uh, who are very well trained to do things uh, in in a way that worked pretty well last generation, but not so much now. So we're just helping people get over the, get over the bridge to, uh, to uh, the, the, a new kind of healthcare. And, you know, as we face this silver tsunami that everybody talks about that potentially could be devastating globally as, as the world begins to age, we've got to figure out how to deal with these things. And, and folks, I think the bottom line here is, is that Dr. Stewart does not believe the hospital is the right place for most elderly people, that home medical care is. Uh, and, Doc, in the final 30 seconds, what's the biggest challenge you face in trying to move us to a, uh, a basically a home-based primary care model? Well, the biggest challenge is the payment system, and that's where Medicare is trying to figure out new ways. As a doctor for years, I, you know, you, you, uh, we, we have an old, old system of getting paid by the piece, like a, a little old mom and pop shop where everything you do gets paid for. In the new way, uh, we begin to, as health systems, begin to take actually financial risk for our own patients. So uh, we become like health plans. Uh, and we, we actually try to do the right thing instead of everything that can be done. Uh, and, and getting that payment system changed is the biggest thing. All right. Well, we, we're going to have to leave it there, Dr. Brad Stewart. We really appreciate your time uh, trying to help us figure out how to die with dignity and live until the very end. He is Dr. Brad Stewart. today. Our takeaway is from Ben Franklin, who was pretty much a quote machine. Franklin said, quote, most people die at 25 and aren't buried until they're 75, meaning, of course, that far too many of us stop learning, stop growing, stop trying once we reach a certain age, and then it's just autopilot until the end. Yeah, that's like the exact opposite of growing bolder because it's about never giving up. You never stop learning and you never stop growing. And if you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country. And we invite you to subscribe 
to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingbolder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh